Welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. These stories were recorded in front of a live audience on July 30th, 2019 at Wellfleet Preservation Hall in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The theme was Secrets and Lies. We'll open with a story by Mosquito co-host William Mullen. So in the 90s, I moved to New York City to be a performer and a writer. And uh, what does every performer and writer do when they arrive in New York City but wait on tables? And I hated it. I could not remember the specials. I used to lie, like right off the bat, I used to lie about the specials. And I was like, <laughs> people were like, what are the specials? I'm like, uh, flounder. <laughs> They're like, I thought this was a burger place. It is, it's a special, it's a special flounder burger. <laughs> so I was like, I gotta get out of this. So I left and I quit my restaurant job and I began temping. I, I discovered this wonderful world of temping and they assigned me a temp job in this public relations firm as an administrative assistant making $20 an hour. Like for the 90s, that was amazing. And all I needed to do was take notes and make copies. I was like the copy guy. They're like, hey William, make some copies. $20 an hour, I'll do anything. Here I am. So, and I was doing that and I worked with a team whose um, role was it to place stories in media. So they're the media relations team. And I worked closely with them and their client was Digital Equipment Corporation. Does anyone remember digital, right? Digital, that, that dinosaur? Oh my God. Now, even in the 90s, no one wanted to write about digital. Like digital, like, a Computer, no one even used digital computers anymore. And um, their client tasked them with trying to promote the lamest website around the Boston Marathon. There was nothing special about this website. It, like, I could have done it. And they're like, go team, try to place this in the media. And no reporter wanted to take this story on. At the same time, I met this guy at a party who was interested in me. And I uh, was kind of lukewarm to him. But, and he asked me out on a date. And I was like, I'm not dating. I'm like, okay, you know what? Instead of just hooking up, I'll go on a date. So I go on and I, I discover he's a reporter for MSNBC. <laughs> and, I and then I start telling him, I'm like, oh my God, that's so funny because I'm temping at the PR firm. And listen to this, they have to like, promote this lame website and it's just like, it's so standard, I could have done it. And he goes, well, send me the press release, I'll see what I can do. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The next day, they contact the CEO of Digital to be on the primetime MSNBC to talk about the Boston Marathon website. <laughs> and everyone in the office looked at me, I was like a hero. <laughs> a hero and a bargain at $20 an hour. <laughs> it lasted all a week. And, um, and I was just basking in it. Now, other PR professionals saw this like turd on MSNBC and they're like, what in God's name miracle worker made this happen? <laughs> and they called this guy who was trying to like date me and, and he's like, oh, it's uh, William Mullen. And so I get this call from this guy who owns his own PR firm. 
And he says, can you come in for an interview? I have a consulting gig. And I was just like, I'll ride this wave, sure. <laughs> so I go in for the interview and I lie right through it. I pretend I'm a media relations professional <laughs> and I ace it. And they hand me the contract and the contract is for $150 an hour. I was making more in one day than I did all week, and I was drowning in debt at that time. So I was just like, yes, I can pay off my credit card, my student loan debt, this is amazing. Finally getting above water first time in my life. First day of work, I go in there, and they show me my own office. <laughs> I was like, I have an office? And then they're like, and here is your assistant, Cindy. I go, assistant? I'm like, I am an assistant. <laughs> I didn't know what to do with her. She's just standing there. I'm like, go make coffee, Cindy, like in the movies. I was like, go make some coffee. She's like, uh, okay. And I stood there for days not knowing what I'm doing. I had one media contact, and it was the guy I wasn't even really interested in at MSNBC. <laughs> he knew this. He knew I was now working at this new PR firm. So he contacts me for another date. I was like, oh God, I shouldn't really do this. But okay, you, you know what, I'll set up a date. My assignment at this new PR firm, because I was the miracle worker, was to try to get reporters to write about extra long baby wipes. <laughs> Nothing else had changed about the regular baby wipes except now they're just slightly longer. Again, a non-story. No report is gonna touch this thing. But hey, we got that MSNBC Boston Marathon website turd guy. Let's, you know. I was like, oh my God, how am I ever gonna do this? So I, um, I go out on this another date with this guy and, um, and I'm like, I tell him about it and he was just like, yeah, I'm not touching that one. I, <laughs> And then, and, and it's worse because like I can maybe use, string him along and use him for maybe any kind of connections that he had. But no, like at the end of the date, he, first of all, he bored me to tears. It was excruciating. And after the date, he's just like, do you want to come up to my place? I was like, uh, you know what? I'm going to be honest for the first time in months in this wild adventure. I'm not interested in you. And he got all mad. He thought like it's payback for like the story at MSNBC and he got mad at me and then he left. And now I had no media relations at all. <laughs> and I march in the work the next day in my office and Cindy's like, what do I gotta do? I'm like, you know what to do, make the coffee, Cindy. So um, I, I was like, I can't keep this charade up. So I went to the, the guy who hired me who was this thick Long Island accent. I was like, hey, Bob. He's like, hey, yo, what's up, Big William? He always called me Big William. I was just like, I'm a fraud, dude, I'm a fraud. And I was like, and I, I, I said, I have, to, I have to give my notice. He's like, well, you, you just started a few weeks ago. What, what, what do you mean, where are you going? I had to think fast, and so I piled a lie on top of all the other lies that I piled on there. And I was just like, I'm, um, I got a gig in Hollywood. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. I'm writing for the actress Rebecca de Mornay. I don't know where that came from, but it was so random that it was believable. Like, who remembers Rebecca de Mornay? And he's just like, oh yeah, I heard of her, yeah. Well, you can't pass up, oh, Big William. 
can't, good luck, good luck. We're going to, sorry, we're going to um, uh, uh, see you go. But uh, he goes, you're going to get some traction for the baby wipes, right? And I go, well, yeah, I'm going to try. And he goes, yeah, because, you know, in your contract, if you don't get anything, we, 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 we get the money back. I was like, what? <laughs> like, I had already spent the money. I, and I hate fine print. I never read fine print. It was in the fine print. What am I going to do? I've already paid off credit cards. Now, I, like, I have no money. Still, I still have no money. So I'm thinking, I'm thinking, and I contact a woman who I used to work with at my old PR firm, and I tell her the situation, and she laughs for five minutes straight. And I go, can you please help me? She goes, oh, yeah, oh, I'm in deep on this. Yes, anything I can do to help with this charade. So I have her... Um, I tell her to call my boss on my last day to pretend she's from the assignment desk of the New York Times, and she's interested in writing about extra-long baby wipes. Because the world needs extra-long baby wipes, not just baby wipes, extra-long baby wipes. So the last, and, and building up to the last day, we had these morning briefings, and everyone's like, how's the media coming, William? We haven't heard anything. I'm like, yeah, I don't deal with the small guys. I'm working on a big story here. A big, big publication is, is about to take the bite on the baby wipes. So the last day, I'm like sweating bullets, and I hear the phone ring in my boss's office, and a few minutes, he throws open the door, and he looks mad, I was like, Oh no, the charade is up. And he goes, the New York Times? The fucking New York Times, William? You were a godsend, you were amazing. I wish I could pay you $500 an hour. I'm like, there, here's the contract, you can change it right now. <laughs> and he left and I was just like, my time here is up and I got out of there. Now everyone's probably wondering, what happened? <laughs> were you found out? My friend was amazing. She kept just kicking the can down the road and saying, oh no, there's a war, the reporter's been assigned this war, and this reporter has to do this, but we're still baby wipes, extra long baby wipes, still top priority. And she kicked it down the road months and months and months that she thinks the client fired the PR firm and just moved on. But I got to keep my money. Yeah. Yay, right? Okay, I don't feel good about that lie because I don't know where that guy is. And that admirer of mine, I have no idea. Like, I've blocked, like, think, I think the admirer tried to Facebook me once, and I was like, no, you know too much. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I did get out of debt and paid off student loans. <laughs> Put your hands together right now for Mark LaRocca. Secrets and lies, do you ever know everything you want to know about your neighbors? Okay. So, late last century, my girlfriend and I decided that, that this shit was real and we were going to move in together. We lived in New York City, and uh, one day after the deadline that we were supposed to make a move, we saw a listing in the Village Voice. And this is not online Village Voice, this is the, new, the, the actual newspaper. So the next morning I got up and I ran over to 22nd Street, we lived in Lower Manhattan, and I ran up the stairs to the fourth floor of this building, and there was a super who was repairing a skylight there. And I looked at the apartment, I'm like, this is great. We're, it's good enough, right? It's good enough, we're past the deadline. So 
I said to him, well, what's up with this apartment? He said, well, it's still open. Someone else just saw it, but it, technically it's still open. You, but you gotta make a decision soon. So I was about to run back down to, to call my girlfriend and his phone rang. And it, it, he answered the phone and it was in Spanish. And I had lived in Spain, so I knew a little Spanish. So I kind of stood there at the door and listened. And, uh, and he said, oh, there's a guy here right now who's looking at the place. And she said, is he nice? And she said, yeah, he seems nice. This is all in Spanish. And then she said, si tenga dinero hoy es suyo. Which if you know Spanish means if he has the money today, it's his. So I was like, yeah. So I ran, I called my girlfriend. She was like, let's do it. This is our thing. Got the money, we had the apartment. Couldn't be any better. I mean, that's fantastic. So we move in and it's a small apartment by New York standards, four floors. The top two floors have two one-bedroom apartments with a skylight. Ours had a skylight, very exciting for a New Yorker, skylight. The first two floors was one massive apartment, three bedrooms with picture windows, and the whole backyard was there, patio, like way above our means. But we didn't care. We were in love. We didn't really care about anybody else in the building. We moved in, and so there, there's five buzzers, right? There's the, the, the four one bedrooms and then the one down there. And the one at the bottom didn't have names, but the other ones did. And no one else was interested in the roof, so everything was cool. And then one day, it says on the, the bottom buzzer, the core, C-O-R-P. It's like, the core, what's that? So I had this thing with, with the landlord. Her name's Florencia, Florencia from Argentina. So I said, Florencia, and I did the little Spanish thing, and she liked me. I said, what's up with, with that? She's like, it's a negocio, un negocio, which is a business. She didn't want to say anything else. I was like, okay, that's cool, fine. <laughs> so after a few days or weeks, I can't remember exactly, uh, we started to see young women coming in the building with duffel bags, right? So they're coming in, and sometimes they had keys, sometimes they buzzed, but they never looked right at us, right? And it was like, all right, hmm, whatever. The rest of the neighbors were kind of hip to it, and they were just sort of like, mm, this isn't cool. Um, but then the buzzing started. So we started to get buzzes at random times, people buzzing to try to get in. They mumble sometimes. Sometimes they sound a little drunk. Sometimes they talked about video games. It's like, what is this? This makes no sense, right? So then one of the tenants, the tenant below us in one of the one bedrooms left. So her name went off the buzzer, you know, and no one else came back. But then the duffel bag started coming to the third floor. Okay. And our downstairs neighbor was the most outspoken. So she called Florencia and was like, what's going on, da, da, da. No, no, it's just a business, it's no problem. We sort of didn't want to deal with it. Honestly, we didn't want to deal with it. We were happy with our apartment and our skylight and the roof access, right? So then the next door neighbor, the other one bedroom on our floor left, name went off the buzzer, and now people were knocking on our door mistakenly trying to get to that apartment. So it's like, all right, this is, this is, it started to feel dangerous a little bit. Like, what's going on? She still, Florencia still wouldn't say anything. The super wouldn't say anything. You knew the super knew, because he was really nice to us, but he wouldn't say anything. He was protecting her. So one day I came home. We had no proof. We had no true proof. But one day I came home for some reason in the middle of the day, and I heard laughter in the backyard. So I looked out. There's a little window in the, you know, if you've been in these New York apartments, tiny little window that you can't really see down. So I ran up to my roof access, peered over the top, and there was a full-on topless photo shoot going on. Like three women, completely naked from the, from the waist up, camera, you know, big cameras, light boxes, reflectors, laughter, wine. So I ran back downstairs, no cell phones until after 9-11 for my, now this is my fiance now, 
uh, and we're gonna be 21 years married in 16 days. Um, so at this point, we're like, we know what's going on, but we didn't know what to do. We talked to the neighbor downstairs. We, none of us basically did anything until the city did. So one day we came home, and you know, at this point it was starting to feel scary. Like people are coming in the building, strangers knocking on doors, could we get robbed, what's going on? Uh, padlocked door, we come home from work, literally there's a padlock through the side of the door and it's completely shut. So even, even though our key worked, you couldn't get in. So we kind of, there was people standing around, all the neighbors from around uh, the, the, the block were looking and we sort of elbowed our way through and they looked at us like, yeah, right? We know you're in it, right? So we're there, we, we fend people off, and it's a 40-page affidavit, 40 pages. So we're voraciously reading through it, reading through it. We get to page 26, where they basically describe that how you would make the appointment. So you would call the number, and then they would say, go to the, the northwest corner of 22nd Street and 1st Avenue, and there's a Chirpin' Chicken restaurant. And in front of the Chirpin' Chicken is a payphone. And from the payphone, call this number and say the word Atari. And Atari <laughs> is the key word to give you the apartment address and the buzzer number, which clearly they didn't get right all the time because they buzzed everything until they got in. So basically at this point, it was, it was over. We knew what was going on. We couldn't get in the building that day, not until the next day. Our downstairs neighbor, they broke into her apartment mistakenly thinking it was the other one and they knocked down her door and then padlocked it shut with her cat inside. So she sobbed in our apartment building, she called the city, she ended up suing for over $100,000 against the city, which took years to go by. To our knowledge, Florencia, the landlord, was never, names have been changed to protect the innocent or guilty, uh, was never charged with anything. So we stayed in the apartment, <laughs> we stayed in the apartment, right? Got this great apartment, we got the skylight, we got the whole thing. Um, and essentially it was empty at that point because she left, everybody was there, and the first and second, the, the third and fourth floor started to fill in again, but not the first floor. It, they, just, they had destroyed it. They destroyed this beautiful apartment. Um, so the time went on, and then we got the scariest neighbor you can imagine. So Mel B arrived to do a, a, uh, a stint in rent. Anybody know who Mel B is? Scary Spice. So of the scariest, Scary Spice became our neighbor and she ended up being the warmest, most transparent, non-secretive person you can imagine. And she brought her mom and her daughter and her daughter played with our young son and it went from scary to wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. Our next storyteller to the stage, please welcome Jessica. Okay, this is the story about the time my parents took their very well-adjusted, very comfortable, very English-speaking kids and packed them up and moved them to France for a year. So what sounds like kind of a picturesque, like south of France trip where you got to go to the market with the locals and eat baguettes was a bit of a nightmare for my sister and I because we were thrown into a very French international school about an hour away from where we lived and kind of had to face the dog-eat-dog -dog world of living with the French, as you can imagine, the stereotypical, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so what you probably call a depression now, my parents called, we found our premature teenage angst, because I was 11, and I found myself watching a lot of Grey's Anatomy, eating, right? 
Um, just eating, sleeping, watching Grey's Anatomy. And the pinnacle of this was where I watched five seasons in one week during our October break. And it happened to be the week where my uncle was visiting. And he took one look at my sister and I, kind of hiding under the covers, and he said, enough of this. This is not going to work. We were like soccer playing, bubbly kids, and we're now pretty much hermits. <laughs> so he went down, and about two hours later, he came back, and he said, Cheska, which is me, he said, look, okay, Monday, you're going to water polo practice. You're playing on this elite team Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday. You'll never be bored for the rest of the year. And I had never really swam competitively um, growing up on Cape Cod, right? You, you swim, you know, my parents threw me over the boat and that's how I learned, but it was gonna be interesting. Still didn't speak any French. <laughs> and I literally wound up first practice wearing a Walmart blue suit and they threw me in the water. And I remember my dad put the swim cap on in the car because I couldn't do it myself and was too embarrassed to be like, Bonjour, uh, tu peux donner mon cap? And I literally walked in, hood over, jumped in the pool. And for some reason, I found myself pretty good at water polo. Um, something about a little aggressive, little soccer, got the arm motion, and I, we were the only girls team in this whole like south of France at Italy league, playing against these like very fat Italian boys. And I just remember, Kick one day, I know it was great. One day I kicked this boy in the neck and he was like, Vafangulo, Vafangulo, like so chubby, like I don't know why. And then it was just like my parents' South of France dream of like markets and baguettes. I had found it. I was playing water polo and like literally killing it. It was amazing. And it culminated to one day the woman's coach, like this elite, like man, French man, he came and he was like, Okay, I, I'm coaching the girls' practice tomorrow and I'm so excited to watch you play. And he's saying this in French, and I finally understand what he's saying. And he's like, are you going to be there? And I say, of course I'm going to be there. Wednesday practice, can't wait, I'll be there. And the special thing you need to know about France is that on Wednesdays, school ends as a half day. So we ended at 1 o'clock instead of 5. And it's a very special part of the story because, so I go to school, everything's normal, great day. I'm really, I didn't tell anybody about my, like, fancy little practice that day, but I knew in the back of my head I had everything ready. And I'm down waiting for my dad to pick me up at this like side of the road. He was too particular about how he wanted to pick us up because he like needs to fast get away and he hated the French and he like, everybody's getting a little angry at this point. So we were sat, <laughs> it was very angstier. So we would walk down a half mile to this rotary and sit outside like a Planet Fitness parking lot where he could come off the highway, swoop into the parking lot, enter the rotary again so we could go. And it was just like, you had to go because we're an hour away from home. So it was just a whole like commute. So we're waiting there and I got my Grey's Anatomy out because obviously, and I'm watching Grey's Anatomy, waiting, 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 waiting for my dad to pick us up. He's always late. So it's like 15 minutes, no big deal. We call him, we're getting ready to like chew him out. We're like, where are you? I'm gonna be late for water polo. It's my big day. And um, no answer. So we wait a little more. Call my mom because she's the boss. So we call her, no answer, a little weird. Um, half hour goes by, no answer. Um, Grey's Anatomy episode ends, start to worry, start calling mom, dad, mom, dad, mom, dad, both sibling calls one, other sibling calls the other, no answer. So at this point, we're starting to think, okay, if we walk to this bus station, then we can ride home, but we don't have any money, so maybe we can hitchhike. We don't really speak French that well, so maybe they'll take pity on the American girls 
might end up dead. Then we can call my uncle who lives in Ireland. He can come get us and we can go home. Like we literally thought parents on the side of the road dead. And we're resourceful girls. Like we had been killing it. So we're like, actually we're looking up bus routes on our phone, like how to get home. It was insane. And then eventually we get this call from my mom who's like, hi, like, what's up? We were in the grocery store and you don't have service and we are pissed off. We're like, what do you mean? It's Wednesday, you pick us up at one. They're right there, we're all ready to pick us up at five o'clock at school. And it was an hour and a half had gone by now. So it was like crazy. We were all like crying on the phone, ready to get reunited with our parents. <sighs> so it like still like, my mom will make fun of me for this because it gives me so much anxiety to this day. And she's like, we were getting food, sorry. <laughs> so they come pick us up, everything's good. We get to go home. I miss water polo practice, right? Because I'm two hours late and my dad is like, it's so fun. We're on our way home and this is so my dad. There's 20 minutes left in practice. He's like, okay, time to go to practice. I'm like, no way I'm showing up to this elite, like the woman's coach practice with 20 minutes left and like two hours gone by and I'm no way I'm playing water polo today. So. I go to the next day, right? I skip water polo. I go the next day, Thursday, and no other, the first person I see is the woman's coach, right? So he comes over to me and he's like, Francesca, like, where were you? I was so excited to watch you play. Why did you skip practice? And I'm standing there and I'm so ready to chew out my family because I need to like say the story to somebody. And I'm starting thinking like how to conjugate like, Oublier, like he forgot me and then like they were shopping and I look at him and I decide that I like it's not I'll like sound like I'm living and they need to call like Department of Children and Families like they won't get it so I look at him and I go I was sick and he looks at me and it's the same kind of like when you lie to your parents about having a fever because you know you stuck the thermometer by the lamp and he looked at me and we both knew I was lying and he was like, okay, you were sick. How are you feeling? And I was like, I feel great. And I hopped in the pool and swam and he never really gave me special treatment again. <laughs> but um, even though it counted out my, that year ended my water polo stint, I'm excited because next year, um, the Olympic 2020s, all of my teammates are now on the French national team. So even though I lost my chance with the women's coach, it's fun to watch them either way. <laughs> That's it. Put your hands together for Jerry Riley coming to the stage. Hello. So uh, I run the Newton Nomadic Theater. It's a theater up, in, uh, up just outside of Boston. It's been running for about five years. It's a great theater. We get fabulous actors. And, um, and I always just tell people, you know, they'd say, well, how did you get, do this with your theater background? And I say, I don't have a theater background. Before I started this theater, I never had anything to do with theater. And a couple of years ago, I realized that's a lie. I did used to run a theater. I forgot about it. It was a, it was a really odd theater. And it was a theater that was based entirely on secrets and lies. So I have a friend, his name's Scott Wilson. I've known him for about 40 years. In those entire 40 years, uh, he's been a trash picker. He deals in collectibles and antiques. He goes to house clearances, flea markets, yard sales, eBay. But every week, he usually goes out one night a week at City of Boston. And you can, in Boston, if you can get it to the curb, they take it away. 
and he goes and trash picks. And, and it's not going through your coffee grinds and kitty litter. It's, it's looking for like signs that somebody's clearing out an attic or, or, or a house or a basement or, or something, big long line of trash. And over the years, month after month, year after year, he finds things of great value in, in people's trash. It's kind of a curious uh, activity. So you know, about 10 years ago, one night I, I tagged along with him, which I do occasionally. And uh, we're out and he's running around. And uh, we get talking and we come up with this crazy idea. And we decided we were gonna launch the Disposable Theater. So that summer, we recruited all of our friends and we would go out, uh, sometimes one night a week, sometimes a couple nights a week, and Scott would find a good trash pile and we would take things out of the trash pile and put them on somebody's lawn and set up a scene. So we'd take maybe a chair and this and like, and we would make this whole scene on their front lawn and then we'd pose people in, this, in the thing and we'd take pictures. Then I would come home, I would take the picture, we would give it a name, the name of the play and have a little capsule, like, you know, what the, the uh, capsule summary of the play. I'd go home, I'd make a playbill and uh, with the picture, it's a disposable theater presents and then, you know, and we would say at the such and such theater and we would give the people's address. <laughs> and it would be a picture of their front lawn. So the next morning I would take this playbill and a form letter that we had. Dear patron of the arts, thank you so much for your generous support of our latest production and we have the name of it. It's only through the selfless, you know, generosity of patrons like you that we can bring our trash roots theater to the neighborhoods of Boston. Uh, your deduction, the total value of your trash may be tax deductible. Talk to your tax man about this. Sincerely, Fred Smith, Disposable Theater. While you sleep, the show goes on. So we would send these things and mail them, these packages, to the homeowner. Now, the thing I loved about this is we have no idea what happened. And I kind of love this. You know, either like they were just hysterically laughing, totally confused, scared, you know, you don't know. And we always kind of dreaded that we were going to be in the supermarket someday and somebody was going to go, that's him! Because, you know, our pictures were, were on these things. Um, but anyway, um, I'm going to leave you with uh, a, a secret. Uh, I want it to be a secret. I ran into Scott uh, two days ago, and we were talking about the disposable theater, which is why I'd gonna t I told the story tonight. And uh, we decided it's time for another season of disposable theater. So I think in the weeks ahead, we're gonna get this thing going. So if you have friends in Rosendale, West Roxby, Jamaica Plain, and they tell you about receiving this weird thing, <laughs> shh, don't tell them. <laughs> Please welcome to the stage, Dana Brodsky. Dana. All right, so um, one thing about me is that I hate music festivals. I hate them. I don't like the heat. I don't like the porta potties. I don't like sitting on the ground. Friggin' hate music festivals. So about 10 years ago, when my then husband, Ed, said that he wanted to go to this music festival in Tennessee called Bonnaroo with a bunch of buddies of his, I was like, great, go for it, because I friggin' hate music festivals, and I was so relieved that he wasn't insisting that I go with them. And so he went, 
and he came back, and he had a great time. And he was even like, he came back, he had um, one of those like all access pass wristbands that like normal adults will just cut off when they get home. But he was walking around like a teenager. He was walking around with it for like weeks until it fell off on its own. Like that's what a good time he had. And I was really glad that he went with his friends and had a good time because we were not at a great point in our marriage. Um, when we met, I was 19 and he was 27. And I was 22 when we got married. And at that time, I was super enamored of him. He was like an artist and a musician and he was super nice. Plus he had a job. Um, <laughs> So like I was, you know, and he was my first real boyfriend. I was just crazy about him. Um, but as will happen, um, I changed a lot in my 20s. I went to grad school and I started meeting more professional type people. And I started to realize that he was pretty unintellectual and um, pretty like irresponsible. And by that summer, I just like wasn't that big of a fan of his anymore. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> but the other thing that was going on was that he had started this new job and he had this coworker there that it seemed like he was kind of infatuated with. Her name was Jessica and she was a few years younger than me and I was only 26 at the time and he was already in his mid 30s, so like she was young. And uh, you know, she was tall and skinny and super fit. And, um, you know, I get it. Like, you go to work every day, you've got that work wife or that work husband. But this was, like, too much. Like, I, I couldn't stop hearing her name. Like, every day, every story that he told me about work, it was something about Jessica. It involved Jessica. Like, she's so freaking great. And it was really starting to bother me. And so one day, I'm at work at my job complaining to my work BFF, my friend Chrissy, and I'm saying, you know, like I keep hearing this girl's name and I'm trying not to be jealous, but something about it, it's like not sitting right with me. And Chrissy, good supportive girlfriend that she is, says like, who is this bitch? Like, I wanna see a picture of her. Like, I wanna see what you're talking about, right? So at work, at our government job, um, we go on, um, MySpace, actually, because that's how long ago this was. We all have MySpace pages. And we find Jessica's MySpace page, and the first picture that we see is a picture of her, Jessica, at Bonnaroo, standing next to my husband. And they're standing together, and they're smiling. They look like a couple in this picture. And I can, I can see, like, I see all your faces, like, you know as well as I did, like, this is the beginning of the end of my marriage, right? So I go home and I confront him and he confesses to the whole thing. But he says he's so, so sorry. It was just a momentary indiscretion, a one-time thing. It'll never happen again. He doesn't want me to leave him. So we go through all of these weeks of like, you know, I kicked him out for a while, we're going to therapy, we're reading self-help books, it's like, we're trying to work out these issues because like whatever, the marriage wasn't great, but we were married, so we felt like he had to work on it a little bit. But there was one thing that was bothering me, and one night I decided to ask him about it. I was like, you know what's weird though? Wouldn't you think that if you had just cheated on your wife for the first time and you had gone somewhere and come back having done that, wouldn't you kind of come back with your tail between your legs? Like, wouldn't you be a little bit ashamed of what you had done for the first time? But you, 
you came back and you're like, yeah, I had a great time at Bonnaroo. Check out my wrist bracelet that I'm walking around with for a week, reminding myself every day of what a great freaking time I had at Bonnaroo, right? And so I'm kind of like badgering him with these questions until finally he snaps. And it, my, my husband, my ex-husband, he was a very easygoing guy, like so easygoing that we never really had fights or anything like that. For the first time in our several year relationship, he snapped and he starts yelling at me and he says, what do you want to know? What do you want me to tell you? That actually what happened was every day for a year I was going home with her after work and fucking her and then coming home to you? Is that what you wanted to know? <laughs> and that was the real end of my marriage and that is why I fucking hate music festivals <laughs> even more than I already did. <laughs> okay, welcome to the stage, Dick Morrill. I don't lie a lot, but there was a time when I was younger, when I was 25 years old and I got out of the army, and my roommate and I, we were airplane mechanics in New York. And we found out about a job that sounded really interesting, um, exciting, adventurous, uh, as helicopter mechanics in Saigon um, back in 1966. So we said, that sounds like, f that sounds like fun. And <laughs> so we inquired about it. We went down to Washington, D.C., and we, um, we were interviewed and told them all about our helicopter experience and all the you know, that we were licensed mechanics, and uh, we got hired. And so we said, what, what, what are we going to tell our mothers? <laughs> oh, we're going to go fly in the war zone, Mom. Uh, no, you don't do that. Uh, so we said, well, tell them we're going to Thailand. So, <laughs> and so we did. We told them we got a job in Thailand, in Bangkok. She said, is it safe? Oh, yeah, you know, monks and incense and... <laughs> And, and the universe being what it is, when our tickets came, there were tickets to Bangkok. <laughs> so I called up the office and I said, mm, we get tickets to Bangkok, we're supposed to be going to Saigon. They said it was a mistake. Tear up the tickets, and so we showed the tickets to Ma Lok. <laughs> and I mean, we just flat out lied. And the next day I was waiting for the mail and I grabbed the ticket. The, um, and we saw they saw us off at the airport, and we went to uh, we went to Saigon, and um, we got introduced to the people there. And the head mechanic came out and said, "Well, um, okay, great, nice to have you here. Tell us about your experience. Uh, how much do you know about these helicopters?" And we looked at each other, and I can remember saying, "Yeah, it's time to tell the truth." <laughs> I don't have any experience on those things. And he said, but it says here, I said, look, I don't even know how they fly. <laughs> and he said, well, you have six weeks to learn are you going home, and we stayed there. After two years, um, I was in a helicopter crash. Um, and it was pretty bad, and, but no broken bones, uh, no major arteries that got cut, and I was fine. And I said to them as a, the people, the helicopter, the military helicopters that came in to get us, um, that pulled me out, I said, look, when, when my company comes, tell them the flight mechanic is okay. 
he's walking, he's fine, and uh, don't send a telegram. <laughs> don't send, please tell them. They'll be here and it'll be the chief people from my company. Don't send a telegram. They medevaced me home. I went to a hospital in Boston. I called my mother. I said, hey, Ma, I'm home. I had a little bit of an accident. Um, come and visit me at the hospital. And she says, oh, yeah, I, 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 I knew you were home. And I said, oh, okay. So she came to visit me at the hospital. And uh, she was happy to see me, and everything was hunky-dory. I was okay. And she said, uh, Dickie, I have this telegram. <laughs> And it says you were crashed outside of Saigon. What were you doing in Saigon? And I said, well, I lied. I've been living in Saigon for the last two years and flying around in Vietnam. And she said, thank God you lied. Thank you for lying to me. <laughs> so I lied to my mother. I lied my way into a job with the CIA. <laughs> the CIA tried to send one of their new employees to the wrong country. Thank God. So, <laughs> so it, my mother was really glad, and the CIA didn't pay any attention to it. <laughs> Thank you. Your hands together for Grace. I grew up in an orphanage, and I got kicked out at age 15 after going out dancing with boys, at least that's what I thought at the time. Um, the day that I left, I ended up taking the bus to my mother's house, which was in a small town. Now, most of us had family my, our families could just not have us. Um, and so when I got to my mother's house, uh, she said to me, uh, what are you doing here? And I said, well, um, there's a new rule. You see, on vacations, Christmas, Easter, summer vacation, we had to go to whoever had family close by, you had to go to their home. And then in the summer, we would go, after school, we would go there for two weeks, and then we'd come back to the orphanage, and we'd go to the beach house. Yes, this orphanage had a beach house. <laughs> <laughs> and so she knew this was not normal, and she said, so what are you doing here? And I said, well, there's a new rule now. Uh, we actually start coming into uh, our family's houses, uh, homes, bef a week before school ends. There was a week left of the school. And she said, oh, okay. Uh, now, the thing is, I lied to her, and I was permanently, permanently kicked out. So I wasn't quite sure exactly what I was going to tell her when she, she realized that I wasn't going back. But I didn't think of it anyways. I didn't think of what to say. Um, the following day, I got on the bus, and I went to school. And um, the nun um, came to me, uh, the school, and she said to me, do you know what happened to Bella and Vanda? And I said, what do you mean? And she said, they ran away. Um, they also got kicked out, but because they didn't have family close by, they were waiting for family to come uh, to get them. But in the meantime, they were there for a few days. Um, and I said, no, I don't know what happened, but I'll, I'll try to find out. 
And um, Vanda was 13, Bella was 14, and I was 15. So being the oldest, I felt responsible for them, and I, I, I needed to find them. So I skipped school for the rest of the day, and I went looking for them. I didn't know where I was going to look or who I was going to ask, but I figured if I see anybody in the city that I know, that I know that they know them, I would ask. And so that's what I did. Even people that were somewhat similar or familiar, I would say, have you seen Bella and Vanden? Nobody knew. And then I found Gasolina. His name was, his nickname was Gasolina. And um, I actually never found out his real name. And Gasoline was 21 years old and he was a drug addict and um, uh, really heavy duty syringes and so on and so forth. And I said, have you seen Bella and Vanda? And he grabbed, he put his arm around me and he said, come with me. And I said, no, I'm looking for Bella and Vanda. And he said, come with me, shut up, just come with me. And I thought, well, maybe know something. And we start walking away and about a 20 minute walk, he brings me to this house. And uh, in this house, there's, you walk through the, the little gates and there's a garage and I get there and there's Bella and Vanda and I said, what are you doing here? And they said, we ran away. We're going with the gasolina to Spain. We're gonna run away to Spain. And I said, well, I wanna go too. And they said, all right. Um, I said, when we're going? And they said, well, tomorrow morning, somebody's going to pick us up in a car and we're all gonna go to Spain. And I said, well, I don't have any clothes with me, so tonight when I go home, I'll bring my clothes tomorrow, and then we're all gonna go. And okay, so that night I went home, and the following morning I packed uh, this big backpack, and um, I got on the bus in the morning, and I kept picturing myself um, getting into this, uh, uh, garage and say, good morning, you lazy girls. Let's get on, on the trip, on a road trip to Spain. And I, this just kept picturing my mind. I just kept picturing, kind of like in a movie. It, 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 it was just this idea of me waking them up. And I get there and I open the door. In fact, the door kept opening up and there's no one there. There's candles, there's blankets, there's clothes, there's syringes, there's hashis, and there's nobody there. I don't know what to do. I get my backpack and I start walking out of this uh, house and uh, a man shows up in a car and he looked like probably late 30s, 40s something. And he said, are you looking for your friends? And I said, no. And he said, are you sure? the two other girls. And I said, who are you? And he said, um, come with me and I'll bring you to them. And I got in the front seat of the car and I said, I have a knife in case if you want to, if you try to do something. I didn't. <laughs> um, and he starts driving me and he brings me in front of the police station. He walks me in there and um, I got there and there's Vanda and there's Bella and they both stink. They smell horrible. They smell like peace, piss and poop and just their head and, and they are tired. And I said, what happened? And as it turns out, uh, someone told the police and the police got into this house 
and these two girls try to run away, and they end up in a city about three hours away. Each one, they went through the woods, they went through filth and dog poop, and, and that's how they were. And so we spent the whole day at the police station, and they said, do you realize that this guy, 21-year-old, was going to bring you all into prostitution in Spain? And I, of course, I didn't believe any of it. And the nuns came at the police station, and they got the girls. And I went home at the end of the day, and I had the big backpack. And my mother said to me, what are you doing with that big backpack? And I said, oh, we had to, we, I had to bring it to school today. And she said, so what did you do today? I said, oh, nothing. She never found out. I never told her. Grace, thanks. So every, every time um, and Grace has told a couple of stories before, we always hear a different piece of the story. I love that. Yeah, so be good to put those all together on our podcast and hear more. Thanks for signing up and intermission and telling. I love that. Okay, we've all kept them, told them. What's your story about? And we lied as a family for years. This is a, like at the beginning of a chapter. And we lied as a family for years, assuring our aunt that her pies were delicious. <laughs> While in reality, they tasted like the mothballs they shared space with on her porch. And then one day, I told her the awful truth. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, you must have been really mad. Uh, by the way, your pies taste like mothballs. Slam. This past Memorial Day, I floated a cardboard coffin with a dummy in it down the Charles River. <laughs> At first, the reactions were very funny, but then things got out of hand. Local police, state police, it suddenly wasn't quite as funny. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> I missed that one. I missed that one. All righty. Let's welcome to the stage, please, Meryl. Meryl. Hey, Meryl. Hi, Vanessa. I'm not that short. Thanks. So I'm 16 years old. I'm living on Long Island, and I really need to get out of there. I have graduated early, and I'm about to go to college. But for the summer, I really need to get some experience. And mostly what, I was, what I'm talking about is I need to sleep with some people. <laughs> so I mean, I mean women, but I'm open-minded. And the only job I can get that summer is at a day camp. And this day camp, I, I made it clear when I went on the interview that I didn't want to do any sports. So they said, do you want to be the assistant in the nurse's office? So I said, yes. Now, I have already lied to them. They asked me if I wanted to drive the camp bus. Now, they have a bunch of 17-year-olds. Uh, in New York at the time, 
uh, the driving age was 17. So the peop this would never happen now, but the people who are driving around busloads of campers are 17-year-olds who've just gotten their licenses. <laughs> so I don't want them to know that I'm 16, so I just say I, I don't want to be responsible for so many young lives. <laughs> so they, um, they're offering me the job in the, in the nurse's office, and um, they say, are you squeamish? And I say, no, not at all. I'm very squeamish, actually. And when I tell my family that I've gotten a job in the nurse's office, they say, but eyeballs, you're afraid of eyeballs, and you're afraid of boils. Like, my brother had those ones. So how are you going to do this? It's fine. So I get to the nurse's office, and the nurse, her name is Megan, assures me that she'll handle, like, the broken bones and the deep wounds, and that I could handle, like, lactose-intolerant children, <laughs> and, like, bug bites and sprains and that kind of thing. Uh, that's, that seems fine, but there are three complications. One is that the only people who enter this space are wounded children, which interferes with my quest to sleep with some people before I go away to college. <laughs> my second problem is that um, Megan has an hour-long lunch hour, and I am the only person sitting in this nurse's shack, basically, and as I've explained, those days were different. I mean, there was like rubble and like broken down playgrounds and like kids are getting hurt like every five minutes. So when she's on her hour long lunch break, like what is, who is gonna come in and what they might have their teeth knocked out, they might have a stick in their eye, whatever. So I'm terrified. And the third problem is I have like a really big crush on Megan. I'm kind of in love with her. But to make matters worse, she's like almost nine months pregnant. So I have this, so that is really my big secret that summer because I, I, I'm always looking at her and I'm like, I'm so weird. Why am I like, why am I attracted to this pregnant woman? It's so freaky. And she knows, she must know, she must know. Every time she looks at me, I think, oh God, she knows. And I have these dreams. I have this recurrent dream where like she's standing with her huge belly and I'm kneeling in front of her, like placing my face on her belly and I think, is that maternal? No, it's sort of, is it maternal? Is it erotic? Oh my God, this is so humiliating. So that's my third problem. So um, one day my worst fear comes true when Megan goes to lunch. Um, I'm sitting alone in the nurse's shack and I hear these screams coming toward me and they're getting closer and closer. And to, to make matters worse, I realize it's an adult who's screaming and he has this deep baritone like moan and he comes through the door and he's like sweating and bleeding and he has, he's the woodworking counselor and he has dropped, he has dropped a tool, like a sharp knife on his foot and it's like his foot is filleted, you know, it's like, it's like, it's like a flap, it's like it's a hinge and it is bloody and disgusting and he's like sweating and, uh, and crying and he says, where's the pregnant one? And I say, she's at lunch. And he says, are you a nurse? And I say, uh, I'm a nurse in training, which is a total lie. But I feel comfortable with this already because my grandmother, as soon as I started this job, t started telling people that I have a medical background. <laughs> and in fact, she continued that for the rest of her life, which especially, like she always referred, oh, Meryl, she has a, a medical background, you know which was like this camp summer, and it annoyed the crap out of my cousin, who was a medical doctor, when she would say, you know, Deborah and Meryl both have medical backgrounds. <laughs> 
so anyway, I, so I tell this guy who's bleeding and sweating that yes, I, I, I'm a nurse in training, and he says, he looks at me and he says, how the fuck old are you anyway? <laughs> and I'm not about to tell him that I'm 16, so I just, I, I know that the thing that I, I've learned from Megan, the nurse, that the thing that makes people feel more confident is that you're bossy, so I just say, sit down in that chair and put your foot up, and I take his foot and let it bleed into the trash can. And I realize, when I, as I'm looking at him, like there's this moment where I think, okay, I'm gonna have to do something, but I look at him and I notice he has really nice lips. And I think, oh, he smells really good for a man who's sweating so much. And I think, I wonder if he would sleep with somebody who's 20 years younger than him. And then I think, oh no, I have to, I have to do something. So, and I know it's gonna, whatever I do is gonna hurt. So I take a pencil and I, I said, Op open your mouth. And I put it in his mouth and I tell, <laughs> I tell him to bite down on it. Because I had seen a movie <laughs> where this guy had dislocated his shoulder and they made him bite on a bullet. And I thought, well, I don't have a bullet, but here's a fucking pencil. And I stick it in his mouth and he's holding it like a dog bone. And he looks sort of puppyish and endearing. And I think, if he'll have sex with me, I'll definitely do it. But then I start wondering how my hair looks. But there's no mirror in this godforsaken ramshackle nurse's shack. So I turn and I look at the paper towel dispenser and I see my hair is really frizzy and I'm really sweaty and red faced. And I'm like, oh, well, I, he's probably not thinking anything like that about me. So I pour the peroxide on his foot. And he, he screams so loud that the pencil comes flying out of his mouth. I have to put the ointment on his foot. I wrap it, I bandage it. And he, uh, as if I had any doubt about how he felt, he slaps me on the back and he says, you did a good job, buddy, and he hobbles away. <laughs> and then um, a few minutes later, Megan finally comes back from lunch. And uh, you know, I, I wanna tell her what happened, but she's standing there and she says, here, here, give me your hand. And she places it on her belly, which is now, you know, the baby's about to come out of her body. And I feel like her, her navel feels like a small orange. And yet I find it sort of erotic. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> So, so she, so just when I think, maybe I'm gonna confess my feelings to her, she says to me, I hope that this baby will be smart and funny like you. And I feel, I feel sort of flattered and sort of heartbroken. And then at the end of the day, I walk her over to her cool little VW bug in the parking lot, and she gets in it and she drives away. And then I drag myself over to the, school bus and I get on with the campers as I'm going home. I'm like heartbroken, I'm depressed, until I have the thought, in a few more weeks I'll be at college and there'll be a whole new crop of people to maybe have sex with, <laughs> maybe even fall in love. Thanks. Put your hands together for Martha Clark coming to the stage. Thanks very much. Well, this is my first Mosquito Slam, and I'm really nervous. So um, I've already got my first secret out of the way because I arrived at about like 7.35 when I saw the sign saying sold out, and I went like, well, you never told me they were going to be sold out, so I'll see if I can like slither in and get away with not paying and sit in at the back, so I did. <laughs> 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 but I have paid, haven't I? 
In case you haven't figured out, us Irish love, not so much breaking the rules, but kind of going, what can we get away with? It's not quite the same thing. It's not quite the same thing as breaking the rules. Anyway, some of you might know that I'm an astrologer, and I've been an astrologer for about four years now. So the stories people tell you in the consulting room are just, you know, you wouldn't believe the half of them, except they do all happen to be true. So I've got my sun and my Venus and my Mercury on in the 12th house, which means I'm a really good keeper of other people's secrets. But my moon is in the first house, which means I'm a terrible liar myself. And a family friend told me ever since I was seven, like, it's just so much easier not to tell a lie, because then you don't have to remember what you told to who. And like, that's kind of how I grew up. Um, but anyway, four years ago, I moved to Italy. I moved back to Ireland after I got divorced um, in 2007. And I spent eight years doing a lot of kind of different day jobs. And I became a photographer at the same time. Um, and after a couple of years, I had a consultation with my astrologer and said, like, you know, I'm still not really making it in Ireland. What will I do? I need to go somewhere else in Europe. So we kind of got out the map of Europe and we kind of picked a couple of places for me to go to. So I kind of did the secret mission, didn't tell anybody where I was going or what I was doing. So I kind of started at the top. I went straight to the Irish tourist board, went straight to the Irish embassy in Milan and kind of going like, you know, I want to be a professional photographer in Italy. Can you help me? And like the embassy loves stories like that because usually it's kind of like, I've lost my passport or somebody stole my ticket, you know. So they love something unusual like this. So they couldn't really help me that much. But basically I ended up in Lucca. Um, it's a beautiful Tuscan, Tuscan town in the middle of Tuscany. And I ended up there and I went to the Tuscan, um, to the um, Puccini Opera Festival. And I met this Italian guy the first night I got there, as you do. And we... <laughs> And basically, it was basically, I missed the opera the first night because I got to Luca too late to get the train to the festival. And I was kind of going like, this is Italy. This is like one of the biggest opera festivals. Of course, there'll be trains like one o'clock in the morning to get you back to Luca after the festival. But there wasn't. So I kind of went, well, I don't know how much a taxi is going to cost. So I'll just like go and have a meal instead and just cut my losses and go to the festival the following night. So I was having like a couple of drinks late at night and I was reading a book. And then this Italian fellow comes along and like sits himself at his, my table and I was kind of going like, who's this fecker, like, you know, chatting me up. And then I went like, you know, but you've always wanted an adventure with an Italian, like, so come on, play along, like. <laughs> so we kind of got talking a bit and I speak Italian, so I was kind of speaking bad Italian to him. Um, so, you know, we kind of met up the next night. And as I may have said before, my Venus and Taurus in the 12th house doesn't tell, you know, what happened. Um, but anyway, because <laughs> William knows a bit about the book I'm writing and he wants to know, do I give all the details? Like, no, I don't. <laughs> Um, but anyway, I ended up going back to Italy a couple of months later because literally the first time I was there for the five days, like the following morning, I just found myself writing like I'll do whatever it takes to go and live in Italy for three months of the year. I will do whatever it takes. And then I went back there a couple of months later for a week. And then when I came back to Ireland, I just couldn't settle. So my business, I went to my business coach and I'll always remember what she said to me. She said, there's nothing wrong with you. She said, when you went to live in Italy, when you went to Italy, you left your soul there. You just need to go back and join it. So three weeks later, I was living in Italy, um, trying to develop photography and back doing like day jobs as a nanny. And the stories you could tell as a nanny are another couple of mosquito slams. Because uh, basically every cliche you hear about Italian family, like every word you hear is true. But anyway, and with the fighting and the slapping and the arguing over ice cream and the drama and the passion, but like it's what makes it Italy what it is. So um, my astrology teacher had started giving classes as I was moving to Italy and I was kind of going like, no, I'd never be able for that in any shape or form. And then next thing I knew I was studying astrology with them. So like fast forward eight months and I'm in Italy 
and I still really wasn't making it as a photographer. And I said to my business coach, I had one last session with her on Skype and I was holding on to that session for like about six months. Like, you know, I'll hold on to it and I'll put it, you know, I'll kind of cancel it for another month, cancel it for another month. And she said to me, well, look, you know, you've always loved astrology. So like, why don't you just, um, you know, why don't you just start doing some free mini readings in a Facebook group? So I did. Um, and next thing I knew within 24 hours, I was an astrologer and I loved every minute of it. So like fast forward another three or four weeks and I was posting in a couple of Facebook groups in Italy um, that I was doing consultations and I got this inquiry from this woman, we'll call her Katie, uh, kind of going, I met you at so-and-so's so -so party and I'd love you to do my chart. And I don't have my exact birth time, you know, but so I was kind of going like, I wasn't at that party. I do a lot of partying, but I wasn't at that party, but she doesn't need to know that, you know. And, you know, and it's, you know, it's a different kettle of fish if you're doing somebody's birth chart and you don't have their time. But I'll be very ethical and I'll tell her that and I'll meet her anyway and you never know what's going to happen. So anyway, I met her and she was only about like my fifth client and she was Australian. And like from the beginning, a lot of my clients were like Australians or Americans living the dream in Italy for like three years or three or four years. And then most of them would eventually go back to Italy or, or to Australia or, or um, America. So she sits down. Um, and I kind of never really got around to telling her that I, you know, that there's two different types of charts if you don't have somebody's birth time. So I was sitting there and I was asking her loads of questions and she sat there and she was talking away and she was talking away and she was telling me about this fella she had a fling with for a year. And then she told me a bit more about him and then she told me a bit more about him. And then she said like, you know, and he owned a restaurant and he sold it and the restaurant was in such and such a place. And I'm sitting there going like, it has to be the same guy. It has to be the same guy. <laughs> And this is where it gets really interesting because, like, there was nothing ethical. Because if it had been the same guy, there was nothing ethical, ethically wrong with me saying it was the same guy or whatever. But, I mean, I was just sitting there and I was biting my tongue and all my confidentiality clauses and all my codes of ethics were, like, going around in the back of my head. Like, will I say something? Will I say something? Because, obviously, the client is supposed to kind of, like, tell their story so you can help them as best you can. So um, I was sitting there and I was sitting there and I was kind of, like trying not to draw her out, but drawing her out <laughs> and asking her this question, then 10 minutes later asking her something else and then sitting back and kind of asking her something else again. Um, and anyway, at towards about 10 minutes towards the end of the consultation, I was kind of, what was his name again? Because she hadn't actually mentioned his name. <laughs> and she told me his name and I went, yeah, it was the same guy. So she'd had a year long affair with the same guy I'd had a fling with like eight months earlier. And we actually became great friends. And I never told her. And we're still friends. She's now back in Australia and we're still great friends on Facebook. But again, the whole ethical thing kept going on in the background. Like, you know, will I tell her I won't I? There's no reason why I can't tell her because he wasn't a client to mine. So there you go. Luke is a, sm Luke is a very small place when you're an astrologer. <laughs> Thank you. Let's welcome to the stage, please, Jack. Jack. So I'm a senior in high school. No one has more secrets and tells more lies than seniors in high schools, except for politicians. My uh, parents, in their uh, infinite ignorance, decided to go away for the weekend. They were going to Pennsylvania to see relatives, and they left me home alone. Beer came to mind. And... Uh, it was early in the school year, and uh, I approached a few friends and said, hey, guys, Saturday night, somebody can get a hold of some beer. Why don't a few of you come over? I was expecting maybe six or eight guys, and 
Well, there was uh, no uh, social media then, so why would there be more? Uh, because word of mouth works. And I had probably in, in the Friday before that Saturday, 60 to 80 guys come up to me and say, hey, I hear there's a party at your house. I had to give most of them the wrong address. <laughs> God only knows where they were, where they went, or what happened there. But I ended up with about 20 at my house. And uh, let me set that scene because my parents owned a two-family house and a lovely widow lived on the second floor. And her son, uh, who was an assistant professor at Yale, happened to be home for that weekend. So as people arrived with their six-pack or two and their potato chips, I'd have to say, keep it down, there's people upstairs. Okay. Well, that works, you know, for about 15, 20 minutes, <laughs> and the volume goes up on the stereo and the beer, and we're great conversation, we're having a good time. Uh, this evening went on, uh, people would show up, would knock on the door, and uh, somebody would open it and say, be quiet, it's guy upstairs. <laughs> well, halfway through the party, there's a knock on the door, and a friend opens it, and he says, come on in, but be quiet, there's a guy upstairs. He says, I'm the guy upstairs. <laughs> and he said, look, my mom is really concerned. I mean, it's up there, it is very, very loud, very loud. Can you keep it down? I says, okay, yeah, I'm good. Wally, you want a beer? You know, he was a nice guy. Uh, so he left, and I tried to keep the party down, and, and that worked reasonably well for a while. Again, it got louder again, and eventually it got to be 1 o'clock in the morning, and we drank all the beer, and, you know, uh, everybody went home. It was fine. I get up the next morning, I look out, there's beer cans, beer bottles everywhere out in the lawn, they're on the driveway, and I get the house cleaned up, and uh, I get all the beer cleaned up, and I get rid of the bottles and the cans, and that was fine. It was a great weekend. Everybody had fun, and uh, we fast forward now to the last month of high school, and the yearbooks come out, and what do you do with the yearbook? You pass it around, you sign it, you make comments, whatever. So that happened to my yearbook, and there were uh, at least 20 comments about the party. There were probably more than that about the fact that people couldn't find my house. <laughs> and I didn't think of it. Uh, I, you know, I brought the book home, and it was sitting somewhere around the house. And uh, the last week, last week, I come home from school, and there's my mother at the table with my yearbook wide open. And she looks at me and says, how many people did you have at this party while we were away? And I told her. And my punishment was I uh, had the keys to my car taken away for two weeks. But um, I'll never forget the party, and I think the, the guys who showed up had a great time. And that was all I really heard from my mother, and I really appreciated her for that. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast. The Mosquito is produced by Vanessa Vardabedian with theme music and editing by Jay Hagenbuckle. Find your next opportunity to join us in person by following us on Facebook and be sure to subscribe to this podcast for more stories. Remember, tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live.